Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 333, now that's interesting, <laughs> of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her fearlessness. You know you love anything that has to do with being fearless. And boy, do we have a fantastic episode coming up. And just know that it's made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to SmartyPantsVitamins.com. All right, here's your first reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because I love listening to your feedback. That's why, and that's a damn good reason. <laughs> All right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. I have a very special guest today. Jean Case is an extraordinary woman whose wit and wisdom I would love for all of you to be able to hear and benefit from. Jean is the chairman of the National Geographic Society and CEO of the Case Foundation. She's a philanthropist, investor in internet and impact investing pioneer who advocates for the importance of embracing a more fearless approach to innovate and bring about transformational breakthroughs. Her career in the private sector, including as a senior executive at AOL, spanned nearly two decades before she co-founded the Case Foundation in 1997 with her husband, Steve Case. And I love the fact that she's a passionate believer in all things digital and the amazing potential of technology to change the world for the better. And for you out there, she's the author of a fabulous book, Be Fearless. Jean, welcome to the Herb Podcast. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Peek. That was quite a glowing intro. I just thought I'm going to try and live up to all those nice things you had to say. I know, I know. I always make it difficult for people when they come on. It's like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> is, is that me? This, this could damn near kill me. <laughs> I love it. And you know, you your foreword uh, came from one of my, you know, all-time icons, as a woman who is most fearless, and that is the one and only Jane Goodall. And what I love about the ending of her foreword was she, it was just a call out. Um, so now as you read Jean's book, Be Fearless, I hope that if you are not already engaged in some activity, you'll hear the call to action and know that you too can change the world. Sooner or later, you will discover the issue that truly rouses your passion, makes you sad, indignant, angry, and then roll up your sleeves, take action, and be fearless. Oh my God, I was like, you know, wiping the sweat off my brow <laughs> saying, whew, all right. Okay, what, 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 
What got under your bonnet to write uh, Be Fearless? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess I should start out by saying there's a reason Jane Goodall wrote the Ford, And I was obviously so thrilled to have her do it. But talk about a model of fearlessness. She's a hero to me, too. So, um, you know, I appreciate you calling that out. In terms of the book itself, this is not the gospel, according to me. You know, um, I had undertaken through my role at our, uh, where I'm CEO of our family foundation, some um, social science research some number of years ago, really asking the big question, you know, what does it take? What does it look like in terms of someone's ability to break through or bring transformational change? Like so many people, I too had had, you know, sort of that head talk that can say, oh, not sure it can be you, not sure you have what it takes, et cetera. And there was sort of this conventional wisdom that you had to have this, you know, certain genius or have gone to the right school or have a rich network or something like that. But that wasn't what we were seeing in changemakers around the world. And so we set out to to do this research using social scientists. And the coolest thing happened, which was that the conclusion of it was it's actually ordinary people who do extraordinary things. But how they actually accomplish those extraordinary things is through the application of five principles. And so that really forms the book. It's a framework around the five principles. But as you know, I really try to have the principles come to life through storytelling of others and what their path to transformational change or breakthroughs was like. I, I know. And I actually loved it. You know, everyone loves storytelling. And I think that uh, people can pick up such inspiration also by hearing how people overcame adversity. And and I think one of the uh, biggest pieces of adversity is your mind. Like, oh, I can't do that. Totally. Which is why I love, oh yeah, which is why I love the very first, you know, principle, which is make a big bet. Now, describe what a big bet is. Yeah, well, you know, if you're talking about trying to do something audacious, right, sometimes it's easy to think about, instead of going to a really big idea or a big bet, to think about incremental change. That comes more naturally to us. If we see something, we say, well, how can we make this a little better? In the world of big bets, which is where breakthroughs and transformations occur, you know, you don't start with incremental change. You really reimagine. Let's say you see a problem or an opportunity. You reimagine something that maybe others can't even see. And I think it's that kind of thinking, you know, really, really sort of reach for the stars kind of thinking. And at one level you say, duh, but at another level you go, no, actually most people don't do that when they think about, you know, their next steps or something they want to do. And so it really does call on us to think about breakthrough thinking, a whole new approach, maybe even a whole new paradigm. You know, when we when we started AOL, um, only 3% of people were online, and they were online one hour a week. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. I, it's just <laughs> sort of a mind blower. <laughs> what the? Where, exactly. where did we come from? This is crazy. Exactly. So a big bet at that time was a big bet we made, right, was that basically you know, being connected would be a big part of daily living and that it would affect how we live, work, and play. And of course, that has come to pass. But the reason I want to use this example is, you know, as we were trying to sort of get people online, 
people would say, why would I ever need an email account? Like, why would my business ever need like a website? Um, so you can't sometimes see like, if, you know, when you have a big bet, others may not be able to see what you see in the future, but it takes persistence and passion and a strong belief and, you know, stick-to-itiveness and you can drive forward and really transform. I love it. And I think uh, the first story you told was about a um, psychologist who had an idea. It always starts with that idea. I wonder what would happen if, and you know, I'm a physician and a scientist, and you know, we would sit around our laboratory at the National Institutes of Health on Friday afternoons. That's you know, when we sat back and said, I can't believe all of the craziness that just happened this week. And we'd sit there and collect thoughts, and then we would start in with, I wonder what would happen if, and then we would all go around the room and come up with yet more experiments, more ways to push the envelope. But Barbara, who is the psychologist, had an interesting thought, uh, yeah. and she was compelled by the PTSD of veterans. And, and tell us a little bit about what happened with that. Sure. Well, I want to go back to what I said earlier, which is it is ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And I wouldn't call Barbara ordinary, but I think a lot of people might have looked at her life at that point and, and said, you know, there was nothing that really jumped out like that would signal greatness in her future, if you will. But she was, uh, you know, a counselor, a family counselor. And as she saw PTSD really raging across the nation, and as our men and women of the military were being asked to do multiple tours of duty, it took a terrible toll on their families. And the VA was, and the military was totally unprepared in terms of capacity to deal with it. So she, like many, you know, healthcare workers would take on a patient pro bono a week. And then, you know, she saw the need, okay, I think I can take a second one. Then she started talking to her network of other doctors and they said, okay, I'll take a family here and there. Well, essentially, one day she called me into her office and she said, I have a crazy idea. What if we were to create an entire national network of doctors who committed one hour a week? Could we really break through and put a dent in this problem? Amazing. Now, what I like to what I like to say, Dr. Peek, is she didn't even have an assistant. She literally had like an answering machine back then. <laughs> she was one person. But she eventually built a network of doctors of almost 10,000 across the United States all of whom gave an hour a week. Um, it was called Give an Hour. And it really, really did help to close the gap in terms of the need for mental health support of our military. I, I just, I absolutely love that story. Um, you know, being a physician, uh, it's sort of in our blood to be of service. It's just sort of the way we we roll. Right. I wish to hell everybody was that way. But it, it, I think a lot of us just sort of go to that place very naturally. And when I read that story, I just said, okay, girlfriend, rock on. You know, just take it on. And, and she touched... Uh, people all across the United States um, who wanted to give, who wanted to get, who wanted to, you know, uh, do a win-win, basically, on the overall. And I'm sure that, you know, to this day, she's probably just sitting back saying, I cannot believe how this whole thing started. You know, that crazy little yeah, idea, yeah. you know? Yeah, and you may know she went on to be named by Time Magazine as one of the most, uh, among the hundred most influential people in the world. 
And I mean, I think she, even she couldn't believe that. But, but, you know, I opened the book with that story and the title of that chapter is Start Right Where You Are. Because anybody looking at Barbara as she set out on this would say, come on, what is she thinking? She doesn't have nearly no organizational planning background, you know, not a powerful network, et cetera. But she started right where she was with a problem she really understood and a solution she thought she could bring to it. And I think that that is really the essence of what that make a big bet is all about. I love it. And so really, um, that's, that's a huge, huge principle in being fearless. It's like, okay, you have an idea, but an idea without a plan and without a strategy is a fantasy. Let's, let's turn it into a plan and a strategy. And that's when you start collecting, you know, ideas around you. And you know, what was wonderful is she came to you to, to have a conversation about that. And you were one of those very pivotal people in her life to be able to say, you know, something that's just friggin' brilliant. Let's do it. You know, like do it. And, and sometimes that's all that people need to hear. And, and then they're off and running and all fueled. I mean, really between you and me, even if, uh, I heard some naysayers out there, I'd say to myself, you know, if it really made sense and if I have an excellent strategy and I've really put thought into it, then if you're a naysayer, you have to go away now because I, <laughs> you're in my way. I need to get something done one way or the other. Now, let's go to principle number two. Be bold, take risks, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you make it very clear that risk-taking is not a blind leap off a cliff, but a lengthy process of trial and error. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny because you mentioned your lab, right, that you had. We totally accept that in some fields, whether it be medicine or science or technology, you know, trial and error, or we call it R&D, right, is a part of the process. And you well know, is because you've spent so much time in a lab, that, you know, you want to take those risks. You really want to try things. And when you're taking those risks, you understand because you're trying something new, it, you may not bat a thousand, right? You may have failures along the way. But when you go into risk-taking with the very idea that I'm doing this to learn and to perfect my path, Okay, because that's really what a lab does. They want failure so they can perfect whatever it is they're working towards. And without failure, you, of course, can't, you know, get to that perfect place or towards perfect, if you will. So risk-taking is really important. And I like to tell people, if you think of it as your personal R&D, it can sometimes just make it a little less scary. I've seen people frozen at the idea of risk. And you know, I'll say, Dr. Peek, if we had an audience with us and we were taking questions, you know, live, I guarantee you somebody will say, now, when you say risk-taking, you know, are you talking about reckless risk or measured risk? And one of the things that I, I try to do in the book is bring tips and tools that can help someone kind of get a sense of what is measured risk and what is reckless risk for you in this situation and for your idea and, you know, I just want to say, although we did talk about the importance of a big bet, big bets can be chunked down, you know, into almost snackable pieces, if you will, so that you can take those risks without losing everything if there's a failure along the way. And I try to draw some of that out to help people understand what that process could look like. 
You know what I like to play with is is this idea. A lot of people are afraid um, to take that risk because, you know, what will people think? And, you know, what if I fall flat on my little behind and all the rest of it? And honestly, I, I play a game. It's a mental game. It's like, what's the worst that can happen? Seriously, what's the worst that can happen? Well, somebody didn't like your product. And, <laughs> right. you know, when you finish that sentence, it, it obviously is then ludicrous. What you're really dealing with is, uh-oh, we're back to fear again. What are you really fearing? Looking stupid in front of people? Uh, uh, making uh, a fool of yourself? No, you're not. What you're doing is you're, you're, you've got a strategy. You're experimenting. I love the Thomas Edison quote. Well, I found 10,000 ways not to do it. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, and I love that. So, you know, that whole word failure, which takes us to principle number three, make failure matter. Explain that one. Sure. Well, you know, it turns out failure can be a powerful teacher if we allow it. And that's what we mean by making it matter. You know, I think the key is understanding the important role of failure as a teacher and being diligent enough if those failures come along to really kind of say to yourself, what have I learned from this and how can I apply it to either go further or, like I said earlier, to better perfect whatever it is I'm chasing here. I just think, you know, failure can can paralyze us if we're not careful, both the fear of it and the reality of it when it happens. Um, but the bottom line is, if you look at almost anyone who has broken through and really achieved great success, you know, the road is lined with potholes of failure. It's just we don't necessarily talk about those things. And if you remember at the start of this conversation, I thanked you for that really nice intro. But when I go in front of my college students, I'm often in MBA classes, guest lecturing, and you know, I start, somebody will read that, you know, bio that sounds so perfect. And then I stand up and read my failure bio, which makes it very clear that it was a series of failures along my life that set me up for success. But, you know, too often there's a temptation for leaders to sweep the failures under the rug and not talk about them. And so we're really denied the opportunity to understand the important role of failure. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You have failures? I'm messing with you here, Jean. Give us an example <laughs> of, of book. Yeah, just give us an example of a failure. Just, just throw it out there. Sure. Well, I'm going to do a very shortened version of one that I could go long on and I won't. So uh, it's the most public failure that, that I have had. Um, we did a very large initiative to bring clean water to Africa. Um, to 10 sub-Saharan countries um, with the idea of a thousand villages. And it was quite an extraordinary initiative that included a lot of partners, including the U.S. government. And the day that we sort of let the world know about it, I had President Clinton to my right and First Lady Laura Bush to my left. So we had stress tested. We, we had done everything ahead of, you know, sort of really taking forward the initiative. Well, it didn't take too long and things were going a little off the rails in terms of quality and scale and other issues that were popping up. So we did what everybody would do. We, you know, really invested to course correct. We put people on the ground. We really were trying to to sort of save this thing, if you will. And it turned out, you know, we weren't seeing the kind of, um, you know, turnaround that we were hoping to. So we made a decision. I chaired the board. We made a decision that we really 
you know, had to kind of close the door on the initiative. And it was hard as could be. And boy, do I remember feeling like, will anyone ever work with me again? You know, will this completely ruin our reputation? And so I wrote a blog called um, The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short. And I published it and told the, you know, the story of what we had been through. And instead of people shaming me or making me feel bad about, you know, the shortcomings and what we didn't achieve, quite the opposite happened. Immediately, I heard from colleagues across sectors saying, thank you for acknowledging that failure. That was a major, like, you know, major initiative. And, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can take on big, bold things that are hard and not have failures along the way. So I've said many times that might have been the beginning of our work in Be Fearless because I saw so powerfully, you know, the role that that failure can play in helping people understand and, and have lessons learned. We started doing fail fests after that, where we would come together behind closed doors and talk about failures. And I must tell you, it was a lot easier if there was wine and beer involved. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and a little day drinking. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> it just seemed to open people up a little bit on the subject of their failures. But really, they became treasured things because we could openly share with one another what has not worked and learn from each other. Well, so, you know, just like Einstein once said, in the midst of difficulty lies opportunity. And um, for every uh, Funkadelic experience out there, uh, the, the, it's just absolutely chock full of lessons. So, you know, you could sit back probably right now, Gene, and say to yourself, wow, you know, I could probably pluck out about seven lessons right off the bat, boom, 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 um, about what we would do um, better next time. Or, you know, maybe sometimes things just happen because they happen. Bad timing, who knew? Um, uh, a change in political climate, whatever, and back and forth. It just happens. I'm just laughing because I'm thinking <laughs> um, of, a, of a story uh, when I was uh, in medical school and one one of my teachers, uh, was OBGYN, was very interested in, in helping with birth control in, I think it was India at the time, and uh, really trying to, you know, empower women with the fact that they, you know, do have choices and whatever, and very well intended and everything, and, and honestly got great funding. Every, it didn't work. And, and she was absolutely baffled until she figured something out. And that is, you know, the lesson here is please be careful about where you actually put that clinic. The clinic was right next to a fertility center. And it was like <laughs> the goddess of fertility or something ridiculous was right next door. It's like, no, 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 no. You can't. Please be more strategic in the future. And to this day, she still laughs her head off about it. Needless to say, they moved it somewhere else and it became a, you know, a, a much greater success. But, you know, it was one of those little things. It's a simple lesson, straightforward. Got to be careful about how you plan these things. Um, but yeah. there it is. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Now. You talk about a bubble. Reach beyond your bubble. Our society is in thrall to the myth of the lone genius, but innovation happens at intersections. Talk to us about it. Sure, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think there is a growing appreciation for what I will call more broadly as intellectual diversity. Um, but, I mean, it really does involve diversity at all levels. 
you know, I, I do think that it makes total sense when you bring, and there's a growing body of research around this. I mean, whether it's Deloitte or, you know, we could go right down the line in terms of the big consulting firms who've written about this. The idea is people from diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives generally tend to outperform. And so, you know, reach beyond your bubble says who's not at your table, right? What point of view don't you have that could help sort of complete the picture? I like to say when you have the right sort of diverse team or table, um, you know, you broaden each other's perspectives and maybe even more importantly, you can cover each other's blind spots because, you know, you and I haven't spent a lot of time together, but my bet is if we did, I would find ways that you can, you know, really expand my perspective on something based on your background. And I can maybe, you know, say, oh, well, you might want to watch out for that or vice versa. And I think this just isn't really well understood in the innovation process, but it's very real. And even Thomas Edison, you know, he had this team that he called the muckers. And when you look at that picture today, it looks honestly like a bunch of old white guys. But when you peel back that onion, very, very diverse backgrounds and probably as much diversity as you could have had at that time, right? When, you know, white, older white men ruled the world. And, um, you know, at National Geographic, I would say the same thing about our 33 founders, very, very diverse backgrounds. And I think that was part of the secret sauce that made us the great organization that we are. You know, it's interesting. Um, (laughs) Here you wrote this book, And now here we are today in society. Do you sit back now and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I was writing about that. And today this whole thing has just exploded. It really has exploded. And I couldn't be any happier that it's exploded, to be honest with you. I even think it has to do with, you know, our American competitiveness and everything else, because if we stayed on the same track of the same people from the same schools who all look alike, who all kind of, you know, have similar backgrounds, we just won't be as competitive as we innovate and try to break through as a nation. So now that women and people of color and people of all kinds of diversity, you know, are more in the mix and companies and leaders are really understanding that has to be the way they do business, I think it really bodes well for all kinds of breakthroughs that we can see going forward. You know, you mentioned I do invest in women and people of color that are entrepreneurs. And really, that is not a social justice thing, that is a firm belief that they will see business opportunities and opportunities more broadly that maybe the elites on the coast will never see. So I actually, you know, I do it because I think it's a whole new realm of innovation that we're just beginning to tap. You know, because I know that Steve is definitely uh, addressing this with um, um, his rise of the rest. Um, I assume, you know, you're obviously a a big piece of that. And um, what I loved about, you know, your approach and Steve's approach is that instead of just concentrating on the two coasts where you have Silicon Valley and then, of course, you've got New York City and, you know, all the rest of that, you know, uh, newsflash, there's... (laughs) There's a whole lot of people in between, and they oftentimes do not get any kind of attention. They're raising their hand. No one's choosing them because all the fancy schmancy and the same pedigrees are showing up from, you know, both coasts and leaving the hinterland behind. And every time I see that there's more investment in 
these marvelous companies led by amazing and diverse uh, founders. Uh, I, I just raise my hand up myself and say kudos to both of you for finally, you know, having, you know, this marvelous movement as a real milestone in investment um, and, and getting these people up and moving and guided, uh, you know, by so much of your networks to be able to help support them as they try to implement and, and bring to life their own dreams um, in business. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I do think this almost bias, and it, it really is a bias, I shouldn't say almost, this true bias that exists today, that all the talent is on the coast, that's a fairly new thing. It's really only come about in the last couple of decades. And even today, if we look at our Fortune 500 companies, and remember, they were all startups at the beginning too, right? But they emerged to be among the 500 you know, most powerful companies in our nation. Two third, over two-thirds of them were started between the coasts, you know, in the towns that people will often call flyover territory, which I find to be the most insulting That term. is so Maybe. derogatory. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Such great talent and companies have come between the coasts really throughout our history. And I think we're just saying look, some of you may be buying into the promise that you got to be on the coast today, but that's just not the way we're seeing it. We see enormous talent and, you know, unbelievable innovation coming really from our nation's heartland. But the three areas and sort of reach beyond your bubble, we think about race, place, and gender. Um, And I think, you know, with a focus on that, we can have an economy and a capitalist system that I think works for more people in more places the way that it should. You know, it's so interesting. I, um, my undergraduate degree, I also have two masters from the same place, public health, public policy, before I went to, I, I, know, I know, I know, overachiever, uh, before I went to medical school was Berkeley. I went to Berkeley. And, you know, we were there long before the rest right. of the country right. was. I mean, I was blessed by ridiculous ridiculous amount of diversity even though i was pre-med at the time um there were some wild and crazy people um that really to this day are still my dearest friends decades later who helped me understand the richness of what their diverse experience was when i could sit back on a friday evening over a glass of wine with a whole bunch of these crazy people and listen to experiences i never had i didn't have them and 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 to understand what i was missing in terms of perspective and how much it helped broaden and expand my whole knowledge base and then to come out quite frankly in a world where yeah there were a whole lot more kind of old white men um and sitting back saying wow you guys are really missing this right um how do we how do we rectify it and that's why when i read your book i was like damn you know she's a little activist um she's out there (laughs) knocking down a few walls and you know uh helping people do this but you know when you go to principle number five you know, this is this is something that is so critical, and it gets back to the title of your wonderful book, and that is "Let Urgency Conquer Fear." Don't overthink, and 
overanalyze. It's natural to want to study a problem from all angles, but you know, I love to call it um, analysis paralysis. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what if, what if, well, you get all tied up in what right. ifs. I mean, tell us how you get through that. Sure. Well, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. called it the fierce urgency of now. And I think all of us in the last several years, no matter sort of what sides you come from, have felt almost like a, a churning in us, right? We're a divided nation today. We have a lot of challenges moving forward. And, you know, several people are thinking somebody ought to do something about that. And let urgency conquer fear calls on us to be that somebody. It's like if you see an urgent need, sometimes that, that churning in your gut almost is exactly what you need to push you out of your comfort zone and into action. And we just find that it is a, you know, a real necessary element and almost a means that many people have used to do the hard thing that living in their normal comfort zone, they would not do. We've seen a lot of this in the last year and a half, you know, throughout the pandemic. Um, if you even look at what we've done with our vaccines, for instance, that was urgency conquering fear because you're a medical doctor, you know, as well as anyone, the process when you're trying to bring a new drug or vaccine forward. So we're seeing signs of this, you know, let urgency conquer fear. I think of our dear friend and just amazing model in this world, Jose Andres, who's known better as a, you know, celebrity chef, but really has an amazing heart for the world. And when he saw the food insecurity following natural disasters, he just jumped in and did something. He's a little like Barbara that we talked about earlier. He didn't have any background to create big organizations or to be, you know, in kind of the, um, you know, helping world, if you will. And, you know, meanwhile, he's fed millions and millions around the globe following natural disasters. There's an urgent need. He goes and he gets it done and he doesn't wait for his 15 point plan, right? He starts right where he is and he just goes from there. And I just think there's more to that than people realize. Yeah, you know, and when you look around, well, part of the issue of urgency, as you may agree, Gene, is you have to be aware that there's an urgency. That means yes. you, you stay mindful and attentive to what's going on around you. So when I listen to Greta Thunberg, you know, talk about um, what's going on with the earth and, and climate and the rest of it, you know, you wouldn't even know about half of this unless you sort of sat back and listened. Whether you agree or not, it's, it's kind of an eye opener. Um, yeah, and it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I also think, though, I tried to draw out in the book that it can also just even be about your personal e urgent needs because... For instance, the co-founders of Airbnb, backs were against the wall. They couldn't make rent. They had to find some way to make money. So what they do? They started selling out cots on their floor of their apartment. And that was the beginning of Airbnb. And, you know, that was an urgent moment. They couldn't sit around and say, what should we do? They had rent to be paid in days, and they had to find some way to make some money. And who knew, right, that out of that urgent crisis that was very personal, um, you know, would be born one of our great, you know, startups of this day. Yeah, isn't that funny? I was just laughing to myself uh, a moment ago, you know, in the 2008 uh, crash 
um, which was a horrible economic mess. There was a young couple living in Seattle um, who had very nice jobs um, and uh, overnight did not have any job. And they sat back, looked at each other. They were newly married, and they said, well, this isn't going to work. And both of them had a, a great love of fitness. One actually was already certified as a fitness uh, a professional. And uh, they just said, okay, and went into their garage, put up a white screen. I, I'm not making this up. <laughs> and they started doing free videos, you know, for the, for YouTube. Right, and, uh, right. Today, today... They have five to six million uh, views a month. Um, they have populated, monetized it like you've never seen. It is the number one fitness YouTube, you know, uh, video great. channel. And and they sat back because guess what? Rent had to be paid, you know, and right. they were doing what right. they could. Little something on the side and back and forth. So I love that. Let me ask you a question. You know, we we've gone through these five principles you know and and they all are just beautiful make that big bet okay and then be bold and and take risks make failure matter reach beyond your bubble let urgency conquer fear you know many times when people read books like this um and they know your amazing background they say have you ever had to face adversity that just scared the living bejesus out of you have you ever had to be in that place where you're just starkly human and i i ask yeah. this of so many people um who come on great authors and incredible people like yourself tell us um could you share something like that sure i'd be more than happy to do that and it's funny because usually i try to give, you know, any listeners a little bit more of a picture of who I am at the start of a conversation. But, you know, I make it very clear in the book that I was born in a town called Normal. Normal, Illinois. I thought you were pulling Illinois. my leg when I read that. I'm like, oh, come on now. Nope. Seriously, it's Normal. <laughs> it's for real. And, and you know my story, which is I was the youngest of four kids being raised by a single mom. Anyone looking at my early life and some of the challenges we faced, I think, would never have anticipated that I could have, you know, the opportunities that I have. But I really went out of my way in the book to talk about my very vulnerable and fearful moments that I had, including, you know, some of the career switch moments where I really, you know, I had people telling me I was crazy to even think about. You know, I was working at GE and I was on a very successful management track, had been tapped. You know, you kind of know if you're, you know, in line for leadership at GE. At the time, it was the, you know, number one company to work for in the nation. And this little startup that I'd never heard of, you know, called from down the road and said, you know, would you consider coming here? And I made the leap. And, you know, friends were like fevered pitch, like, are you crazy? What are you doing? And, you know, that was a very scary time for me because I believed in my gut. It was the right thing to do. But nobody around me was really affirming that, with the exception of my mom, who sort of believed in anything I was going to do. Um, but, you know, I just think we all go through that. And, yes, I mean, there have been moments where I didn't know if I could pay my rent. I didn't know that I would be able to get the next job, that, you know, a situation would turn out. And I try to be 
super honest about that in the book. I didn't really want to write about myself in the book, but it became clear to me I couldn't put these principles out there and really challenge people to challenge themselves if I didn't, you know, be more transparent about what my own struggles and failures were along the way. Wow. Okay. So we've got, you know, a very humble beginnings in honestly the strangest name of a town I've ever heard of, but that's okay. Um, I, I got to admit, I sat there saying, oh, come on now. And then I looked it up and I said, dang, you know, it's the real thing. I mean, there's a place called normal. I mean, I'd almost want to just rebel and just be abnormal somehow as much as I could, just so that people, you know, would have some, you know, small faith in me, you know, somewhere along the line. But I just love that. And, you know, in, in your own life, have you ever had, you know, beyond the, you know, you went back to normal. I did. As it were. I did. That was the prologue. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> tell, tell me, tell, share us just briefly, what was it like to go back? Well, um, you know, I really went back with really strong intentionality to kind of, and, and really the saddest thing is, you know, our family moved from that town. My mom did with, uh, you know, us four kids when I was an adolescent. And so, you know, by the time I went back, there was no one left. Anybody left was in a grave. Um, and so I, to write the book, I got an Airbnb and just by myself spent, spent about three weeks there and woke up every morning and wrote till the you know end of the day. And I must tell you, living with these unbelievable people through the stories that I tell was an amazing experience because although I was all by myself, I felt like, I don't know, I was walking, think about it, like, you know, Jane Goodall and, you know, all of the people that I feature, Oprah, and we could go right down the line, Steve Jobs. Um, it was just like, wow, wow, wow. And I knew then that their stories had to be told, that they could inspire because they would inspire me every day. Um, but I loved going back to normal, and I've been back since, and it's a really special place. <laughs> but I really, um, I think maybe without going back to my roots and really exploring that, it would have been harder for me to make this book come to life. In 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 a way, you just became naked to the world. Um, there you are, you know, you came back to normal, um, to fairly humble beginnings to, you know, uh, a place where you had to have, um, enough strength and courage to kind of keep pushing along and doing what you believe right. was right for you. And I bet as you look exactly. at that house, you know, I'm from San Francisco and I remember going back to, um, my childhood home, uh, and just, you know, driving up and, and parking across the street and just staring at it and remembering how yeah. it all began and just saying, here I am. Um, after all this right. time, extraordinary life, just like you, we all have our own unique, unbelievable adventures and journeys. And cause that's what life is. It's a journey. And then just kind of reviewing the, you know, how blessed you are by these relationships. Yeah, that that's, yes, very you know? true. Yeah, that's right. Really every step, and I think also in writing the book, just really being grateful for the awareness that the hard things were there for a reason, that the failures were there to make me stronger, and to be able to really focus on that and turn it into a narrative that hopefully can, you know, 
speak to people in their troubled times or, you know, as they're going through difficult things, or even if they're just, you know, really trying to chase some really big dream that they have. Wow. I I just absolutely love that. So there's something I just want to share with everyone out there, and that is directly from your book, right toward the end. Teaser alert. Um, And that is when you write, can you imagine saying out loud, I'm the one who will find a solution to this problem. I'm the one who will show up when there's an emergency. I'm the one who will take the big risk when the company needs a spark. I'm the one who will care for the person who's left behind. I'm the one who will speak up when others are silent. I'm the one who will tell the story that needs to be told. I'm the one with my heart in my throat who will dare to act. What were you thinking when you wrote all that? Whatever I was thinking, it certainly is moving me right now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the, the book was a call to anyone who wants to live an extraordinary life and really have a purpose through that life. And extraordinary, as I point out through all the stories I tell, comes in a thousand different flavors, right? It's not just business. It's not just money. It's what you do in this world. And I was really trying to to say, you know, it's up to all of us. And will you join me? I love it. And and when you said that, um, it also goes hand in hand with your other words. It is my sincere hope that you will feel that urgency as an inner force and choose to be among those who step forward. That voice calling is meant for you. You know, and what I love about that is is that you make it welcoming to just go out there and kick some ass. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, let's just bottom line it it right now. Absolutely. I know. Just come on. I'm not afraid. Move out. If you're not with me, move out of my way, you know, because I have something I want to get done. And I just love that, that call out. And I, you know, it's it. It's a call to to arms and legs, um, you know, to get out there and, and rock and roll and pick up your little behinds, um, male and female, and all diversity, and 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 just run with it totally, and just not be afraid, just not be afraid. You know, and I quote Helen Keller in the book because I think you have to just pause for a moment and think about overcoming adversity, right? Who famously said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And really what I think we need to call each other to is that life of daring adventure. Yeah. And not to be afraid. Um, by the way, that's my motto. That's my motto. So you stole that from me. Um, and I will forgive you somehow in my, in my deepest of hearts. (laughs) I, I literally have that written everywhere. It's just, you know, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And what I usually right. say to people, just like you, I join your chorus in in saying, you know, opt for the daring adventure. Otherwise, why right. get up in the morning? I mean, what's the point? Right. You know, right. you want to lead a life of meaning and purpose, right? Yeah, right. And I think anyone joining us today, you know, and listening to us, 
has that, right? They're, they're with us for a reason. And, you know, you never know that moment when the spark is going to be strong enough to turn it into action. I love it. I just absolutely love it. What a gift you are, Jean. I mean, seriously, this is ridiculous. Oh. Fangirl, fangirl. So, um, sh- oh. and shameless. Um, <laughs> so everyone out there, don't be an idiot. Um, go ahead and buy the book. It's called Fearless. And this is all written by Jean Case. And it, it will really strike home. And if you're not inspired by these stories, well, then I don't know what to say about you. You know what I'm saying? You, you've just got to know you've got it in you. One last word of wisdom for everyone before we close out here, Jean. Go ahead. Yeah, I would just say, you know, it's time for all of us to be fearless. Uh, and I welcome everyone in this journey. Um, and to you, I want to say you've said so many kind things to me, but thanks for all you do and have done and for this platform that you provide for your listeners, but also for someone like me to come in and have this conversation. Super grateful for the opportunity. And I hope I'll have the chance to hear from a lot of folks listening today. Oh, heck you will. I can guarantee you that because when when this goes live, <laughs> we spin this like you've never seen and they're going to love to be able to hear from you. And who knows, maybe someone will reach out to your foundation and say, hey, you know, I'm out here in, in, in God's country and I've got this really great idea. Maybe it might work right. for you. Who knows? You never know. You know, great stuff out there. Oh, I love it. Jean, I I can't thank you enough. And for everyone out there, this has been a phenomenal episode. Please take a minute, hit iTunes, rate and review the show. I'm waiting to hear from you because I'm Dr. Pam Peak, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peak or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peak MD. Remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes, iHeart, Apple, or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today. Please stay safe and stay well.